we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, April the 1st, in the year of our Lord, 2019. And I'm Pastor Mark Smith. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'm not. I, I'm Pastor Wes Rhyme. No, I'm not. April Fool's. And today we're going to be taking a look. I'm Tom Baker with the gospel reading for the fifth Sunday in Lent. It's in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 20. Parable. Jesus is telling his people. At church yesterday, my wife mentioned she had been talking to an individual who listens to Law and Gospel on KFUO, and he appreciated my understanding of what a parable is. And so I want to start that off with just explaining a little bit how I understand parables. I used to think that a parable was always about Christ and the church, but Dr. James Veltz corrected me in showing me that sometimes the term parable just simply refers to a kind of a metaphor in the Bible or a simile, and not necessarily about the kingdom of God. And uh, I do not believe, for example, the Good Samaritan is a parable but it uh, about the kingdom of God, but it is a parable in the sense that Jesus is using a story and using a simile and a metaphor uh, to talk about who is our neighbor. So I am talking about parables when they're talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, sometimes Jesus starts it by saying the kingdom of God is like or the kingdom of heaven is like. And when you think about the kingdom of heaven, isn't that the afterlife? No, that can be the holy Christian church on earth. So parables are what is being described as what is happening from God's point of view about here on earth in the holy Christian church. And that's really what this parable from Luke chapter 20 is all about. A couple of things I'd say about parables. Whatever a parable is talking about is not what a parable is talking about. What? Well, for example, in the parable of the lost sheep, a shepherd goes out, finds the lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders, carries it home. That is not the point of the parable about how shepherds are to find lost sheep and what they are to do about them. In fact, no shepherd would put a 100-pound sheep, dirty as it is, on top of his shoulders in the wilderness and take it home. No. So that parable is not about how to take care of sheep as it is about how Jesus came and found you, you who were lost in the kingdom of Satan and brought you into the kingdom of heaven uh, with joy. And that joy, that word is also found in the book of Hebrews talking about on his way to the cross. In fact, it's part of the gradual during the season of Lent, that quote from the book of Hebrews. So when you are going to be reading about a parable that is about the kingdom of God, you need to understand that the actual items in the parable is not what Jesus is talking about, but they refer to other individuals. Like in the lost sheep, the shepherd is Jesus. 
the 99 sheep who don't think they need to be found are the Pharisees, and the one sheep that is lost is the tax collector or the prostitutes. Chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, that could be talking about Jesus who plants the church and then he gets ascended into heaven. But that's not, as we're going to find out from the context, that occasion. I believe a man planted a vineyard refers to God creating the world in six 24-hour days. And he let it out to the tenants, Adam, Eve, human beings, and went into another country for a long while. Remember, the Messiah did not come for some time. And so even though God continued to talk to his people in the Old Testament books, he still had not really done what was necessary to forgive their sins. That was the work of the Messiah. The Messiah is talked about a lot in the Old Testament books, and in fact, he's mentioned a lot as the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. Anyway, verse 10. When the time came, he, now that's the man who planted a vineyard, that would be God the Father, sent a servant to the tenants, that would be the human beings, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, who is being sent away empty-handed? Jesus mentions this in the New Testament books, uh, the idea that a prophet is without honor in his own country. And a lot of times when prophets were sent to the people of Israel to warn them of their sinful condition, they sometimes sent them away empty-handed. They ignored them. And sometimes they imprisoned them and even put them to death. Verse 11. And he, that's God the Father, sent another servant, another prophet, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Now, we've got a number of prophets. We got Elijah. We got Elisha. We got Isaiah. We got Jeremiah. Just read the book of Jeremiah to see how shamefully they treated a Jeremiah. And, boy, they did not give him the proper worship to God that they were to do, but they were looking at themselves as self-righteous. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that many of the prophets sent to the people of God were not only treated shamefully, uh, they were wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard, verse 13, chapter 20 in Luke, sent or said this, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Anybody want to have an idea who the beloved son is? 
It's Jesus Christ. This is why I say that when we talk about that the uh, individual went into another country for a long while, that can't be talking about Jesus ascending into heaven because he now appears as the beloved son of the owner who is God the Father. Perhaps they will respect him. Uh, Notice there's not an assurance that they will respect him. And that's found throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he will be treated shamefully. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, this is how powerful the devil is. I mean, just stop and think about this. They're going to kill the son. They think the inheritance is theirs. Did they forget about the father? It's just really interesting to show how people do things that are very sinful because the devil just captures them. I've been talking about one of the uh, programs that uh, comes out of Britain And it's called Silent Witness, about pathologists who try to figure out why people died. But before, of course, it gets to the pathologist, it shows how the person is murdered. And it's just amazing why people will kill other people. They may get angry at them. They may think there's some money involved in it. Uh, They may be, you know, cheating on them. And it's just one reason after the other. And, of course, when they get caught, they try and excuse themselves, which never works. But, verse 15, when the son arrives, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. If that isn't a clear reference to taking Jesus out of the city of Jerusalem to the garbage dump of Golgotha, And putting him to death. The question then comes. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now if if you look up the word uh, vineyard. uh, A lot of times it does refer to the people of Israel. That God had a chosen people. Not the only ones to be saved. But the chosen ones in order to send out the message of salvation. And so this parable, although it seems to be talking about a farmer who's having trouble collecting fruit and in uh, wages that he should have received, it's really pointing to what is happening in the kingdom of God on earth. God sends his prophets as servants. They're shamefully treated. Finally, he sends his son, and the son is killed. Verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. In fact, it reminds you of another parable where the owner is going away to another land and he divides 
his wages or the money to the various servants and tells them to go and work in the marketplace for him while he is gone. And remember, there's that one character who buries it in the ground. Now, he does so for a very simple reason. If the owner comes back, he can say, well, here's your money. And if he doesn't come back, well, then it's all his. Nobody knows about it because he didn't work in the marketplace. Nobody knows he's a uh, servant of the owner, and therefore he can keep the money for himself. When the owner finds that out, he gives those funds instead to one of those who had been faithful to him working in the vineyard. And people ask, well, why? He's already got some. But the owner says, no, I can do what I want with what I have. And so that kind of reminds me of that, that he gives his vineyard to others. Who was the vineyard given to in the church? There's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female. All of them can now become part of the kingdom of God. And if you want to read about that, read Romans 9, chapter 9 through 11, to hear how about the new Israel is including the new owners of the vineyard, which are Gentiles and believing Jews. So very, very important here. that This is a parable that really becomes pretty obvious as you keep on going to it. He will come and destroy those tenants. When did God do that? Well, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would be an example, of course. But even more importantly is Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Remember the goats who do not believe in the Jesus Christ as the Messiah of the, the world. They will be sent to an eternal hell and suffer there in comparison to the sheep that go into heaven, inherited because of the gift of God. So, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So, the people who were listening to Jesus, when they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, the reason they're saying that is because it's very clear here that verse 19 says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour for saying this parable. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. See, they were aware that the parable was against them. They just didn't agree with it. Surely not, as though we're going to be the ones who are going to be removed and replaced with other people, especially not with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all this sort of thing. Surely not. And Jesus then looks at them directly, verse 17. Remember another time that Jesus looked at somebody directly? It was Peter when Jesus was on trial. And he looked at Peter directly after he had what? He had lied that he knew Jesus 
three times after he had said, I will never do this. No, you won't find me doing that. He looked at him directly, and Peter went out and wept. So Jesus looks at these people directly, who says, surely not, and says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what's the stone that the builders reject? This is from Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus is the cornerstone. Remember what a cornerstone is. You take away the cornerstone and the whole wall comes down, perhaps a whole building. And when Jesus came as the cornerstone of the new building, the Holy Christian Church, the new Israel, they rejected him. And Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the builders would be referring again to these unbelieving leaders of Judaism, the unbelieving ones, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they rejected Jesus, and he becomes the cornerstone of the Holy Christian Church. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, what is that talking about? One may stumble over it, or be crushed by it. But all who reject Christ will feel its sharpness and pain. I believe that those who fall on that stone also could be referring to those who are repentant of their sin, and then our old Adam is broken to pieces. It's far better to fall on the stone Jesus, to bow before him, and be broken. I'm a poor, miserable sitter, broken in pieces, rather than have the stone fall on you and you will be crushed. So we've already talked a little bit about verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Boy, does that ever show a difference between a believer and an unbeliever? An unbeliever thinks he should be doing something, but out of self-interest, he won't do it. The believer knows that he should be doing something, and even if it's going to result in him being beaten or even killed, he will do it because he knows the Lord has promises for him. So whether or not individuals fear the people or not, anybody can fear the people, uh, Christians and non-Christians. But those who keep quiet are doing so out of self-interest in comparison to those who are willing to put their life on the line. They do so because they love God and they believe his promises. This next one, verse 20, is really something that um, you really got to remember because it helps us in uh, a number of uh, 
in, uh, individual situations and events. Remember, there's a lawyer in Luke chapter 10 that goes to Jesus, says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as you go through it, you really get the impression that he was sent by the religious leaders of Judaism to try and get Jesus to say something that would put him into trouble, not only with uh, the people, but maybe even with the Romans. This verse 20, and it's Luke chapter 20. So they watched him. Who's they? It's verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests who are unbelievers. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Who was the governor? Pontius Pilate. And remember at the trial of Jesus, they had individuals who were lying about what Jesus had said and others who were misinterpreting like, he said he's going to destroy this beautiful temple we have and then rebuild it in three days. And the gospel writer even clarifies it, saying that Jesus wasn't talking about the building called the temple. He was talking about his body, that it would be put to death, but in the three days later it would rise from the dead. So... When you look at, uh, and that's the Good Samaritan, by the way, Luke chapter 10, when the lawyer comes to him and says, what shall I do to be saved? I, I believe this was one of the spies sent by the scribes and chief priests who pretended to be sincere that they may catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. I like watching uh, police stories, and a lot of times a policeman will say something when he's investigating uh, probably a defendant, and he'll trick the defendant into saying something he didn't mean to say. And he's able to do that because the defendant begins to trust him. He thinks that the police inspector is sincere when he really isn't, He's just using the opportunity to try and trick the defendant into finally saying something. Now, that would be good. Uh, police even are able to lie. I, I, I remember this one I just saw. It was just so good that um, wife had killed her husband and the dog was barking, so she killed him also. And then she gave a song and dance that he had died at a certain time when she was out of the house. So she had an alibi. She said, I think, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they were unable to really ascertain, ascertain whether or not that death had occurred at 3 or in the morning when she was home. And so the pathologist came in and said, you know, when dogs die, their liver goes through certain stages. And when you test their liver after they're dead, you do an autopsy on the dog that was killed, you can pretty well tell within an hour when it was killed. And he said, yes, it was killed at 9 in the morning, not at 3 in the afternoon, as you said when your husband died. 
And she broke down and tried to explain, therefore, why she had killed her husband. He was mean and this kind of thing, and she had to kill the dog because it was barking. And so she confessed. As the pathologist was walking out of the room, he turned around and said, by the way, all that stuff I said about the liver of a dog going through different changes after it dies, that was all a lie. That never happens. (laughs) I thought that was really good because I don't know that much about, you know, dead bodies of humans and animals. And when he said it, he usually always telling the truth. I, I thought he was <laughs> correct that there was something about the liver of a dog that goes through stages. And boy, was she shocked. But he had tricked her. People try to do that to Jesus. They'll try and do it to you when they ask you questions that are really quite ridiculous. And as we've been saying, when you're talking to young people who have fallen away from the church, their questions are pretty ridiculous. Don't answer them, but get back to Jesus as the promised Savior. I'm Tom Baker. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite hymns. My song is Love Unknown. Till tomorrow with Mark Smith. God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.